Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. And lastly, I'll be reading today's teaching text, and the teaching text comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Siona. Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. Um, I was reading this week um, a quote by uh, John Wesley, and he said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than all the theologians uh, in England. And I was thinking about that for myself this week, and I feel fortunate that that has been true in my own life. Hi, Mom. Uh, my mom is like a, the best subscriber on the YouTube, all right? And so when you, when you, uh, if anybody does the announcements and says uh, welcome, don't forget my mom, all right, please. Uh, but I feel fortunate that my mom has been an inspiration, uh, an example, and uh, a driving force behind my own personal following of Jesus. And so what I did this week is I started looking at different scriptures Um, about mothers and the high calling that mothering is. And um, I came across, of course, the Ten Commandments telling us to honor our father and our mother. Um, One one parallel uh, was really fascinating in the book of Psalms was that God is like a comforter as as um, as a mother comforts her child. And I was like, wow, what a high calling this idea of being a mother is. Every single one of us was carried for plus or minus nine months All of us were given birth to through exhaustion and pains, and every one of us by a birth mother, an adoptive mother, or a mother figure has been nurtured and sheltered through infancy and through times when we couldn't care for ourselves, and you find yourself here today because of someone's instinct to care. Uh, My parents divorced when I was seven years old, and my mom was a single mom for much of my childhood, and I can't even imagine the pressures that she faced raising us kids, finding work, trying to date going to school, struggling financially at times, letting go of her children, 
And so there's a weight to it. And then I was thinking about my wife this week, um, who's become a mother over the last few years, and I get to observe and watch the beauty and the burden that she carries, balancing life, keeping her own identity, and then while garnering this new identity as a mother. And so, uh, as you can tell, um, the idea of mothering is quite complex in this way. And so, um, I'm incredibly honored to know two strong uh, women, and we love you, and we are thankful. And so, mothers, today, we see you, we honor you, and we acknowledge, though many of us don't know how it feels, we acknowledge that mothering is hard and it can be discouraging and lonely, but we are with you. And so um, we celebrate you today. And then, of course, we know that there's another side of, of day like today. Um, it can be filled with sorrow, a, a sense of loss, a reminder of what was, or experiences of betrayal. And so if that's you today, I'm sorry. And I really mean that. I'm sorry. I'm really glad that you are here. Um, I pray that today would be a great encouragement um, to you. And I just want to pause up front and um, there's a verse, um, I, it's, I think it's in Matthew, and it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so let's do both of those things really well today. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so I want to read this poem. I think that this is just really, um, it encapsulates everything. It's a little bit long, but it's a prayer for all women um, by a woman named Amy Young, and then I'll pray for us today. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're like Tamar, struggling with infertility or a miscarriage. I want you to know that I'm praying for you if you're like Rachel, counting the women among your family and friends who year by year and month by month get pregnant while you wait. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're like Naomi and have known the bitter sting of a child's death. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're like Joseph and Benjamin and your mom has died. I want you to know I'm praying for you if your relationship with your mom was marked by trauma, abuse, or abandonment, or she couldn't parent you the way you needed. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're like Moses' mother and put a child up for adoption, trusting another family to love your child into adulthood. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're like Pharaoh's daughter, called to love children who are not yours by birth. I want you to know I'm praying for you if, like many, are watching or have watched your mother age and disappear into the long goodbye of dementia. I want you to know I'm praying for you like Mary if you're pregnant for the first time and waiting breathlessly for the miracle of your first child. I want you to know I'm praying for you if your children have turned away from you painfully closing the door on the relationship, leaving, your holding, leaving you holding your heart broken in your hands, and like Hagar, now you are mothering alone. I want you to know I'm praying for you if motherhood is your greatest joy and toughest struggle all rolled into one. I want you to know I'm praying for you if you're watching a child battle substance abuse, public legal situation, mental illness, or another situation which you can merely watch unfold. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you if, like so many women before you, you do not wish to be a mother, are not married, or in so many other ways do not fit societal norms. Let's pray as we begin today. And so, Father, we, um, we're here, we're present, and we want to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so help us do that well today. Um, help us encourage one another. I pray that we would meet someone new and put a smile on their face, a level of joy and presence today, a chance to be known. I pray now as we uh, come to your scripture that we would get a very, very clear picture and vision of who you are, God, what you came to do, and um, what it means to follow after you. I pray that today would be a formative time, that we would, be, um, we would come in with all of who we are, but we would leave more like your son, Jesus. And so may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, 
since Easter, we have been continuing in Mark's gospel, and we've sort of inadvertently been in a series on faith and doubt and belief. It was not necessarily planned, um, but that's been the trajectory that we've been on. And what we said last week is that faith is trusting, this is a definition, trusting that God is who he says he is, and he'll do all that he promised to do. And in Christianity, to have faith is to follow Jesus believing that his way of doing things, his way of being actually supersedes every other way. The way of following Jesus is saying, your way is better than my way. And the really, the really beautiful thing about thinking of faith in this manner is that this idea of faith truly matches our reality. The New Testament word for faith is the Greek word pistis. It means to place your trust in something, place your faith in something. And so in a literal sense, the word, the word can mean like I lean on, like I'm, I'm, I'm actually just like resting on this thing and I'm trusting, I'm having faith that it's going to sustain me, it's going to be able to hold me. And so this matches our reality. We as people are constantly placing our faith or placing ourselves, our trust in things in this world. That's just true, right? In an age of hyper-individualism, what do we do? A lot of people lean their lives on themselves. They say, I got this, right? I pick myself up by my bootstraps. No one needs to tell me what to do. I know what it takes to be motivated in this world, and I do it by myself, right? And so a lot of people come along, and without even saying it, they say, my faith is actually in myself. Or what about in an age of upward mobility? We find a lot of people, especially in a city like ours, we find a lot of people leaning their lives on their finances or their merit or on their job title or on climbing that ladder, right? And it doesn't even matter what it is that you believe, you actually have faith. You have trust or you lean your life on something to hold you. And so maybe we'd begin by acknowledging that we're deeply spiritual regardless of what we believe because we place our faith in things. And so that's what this sort of series has been about as we've been going along. And actually what we find is that Jesus has been encountering different people and they've been placing either their faith in him or they're wrestling with their faith. And what we see in the text today is that Jesus comes home to a city called Nazareth um, and what he's doing is he's encountering rejection. People are not simply putting their faith in him, but they're actually rejecting him. And so here's, here, here's where verse 1 begins. Um, I don't know if we have it up on the screen here. Um, it'll come up, but if not, you can pull up in, uh, on your phone or whatever it is, Mark chapter 6. And then we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. There we go. And so it starts like this, and we'll just leave this up for a bit. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And so the text here doesn't name it. In another gospel, it does. This is Nazareth. Nazareth, um, scholars pretty much agree that Nazareth is like max 500 people. Think small hometown. I was actually doing a little bit of research, like what was the global population at the, in the time of Christ? Uh, it was 300 million, and so actually less than the United States um, in terms of like global population during Jesus' time. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and his disciples follow him. And on the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, so they're surprised, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and uh, Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And then look what it says. And they took offense at him. And so here's Jesus. He comes home to Nazareth. And what is the question? Isn't this just the carpenter's son, right? Like, that's it. That's all he is. Uh, I, went to a, um, I went to a small um, Christian college. And so I think there was 
um, in my, for my undergrad, there's like 400 students, I think. That was it. And so, like, if the breakfast sandwich recipe changes in the cafeteria, like, it's talk of the town, right? Like, that's just the way that it goes. Or, like, uh, dating at a small college, like, forget about it. Uh, you get, like, maybe one or two chances. You date more than two people. Like, everyone knows it's over. Not at the same time. I, could just, I just registered. Not at the same time. Um, I mean, like, consecutively, okay? Don't do the other thing either, but... You just get lost, though, right? Like, I mean, everybody knows everything. Nazareth, a small town. But thinking about Jesus, Jesus also isn't returning just like as a nobody. He's not just like some sort of random teacher or miracle worker. But verse 1 says, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus actually comes home with his disciples. He's, he's actually like a legit rabbi. He has something to come back and to share. And so in Mark and Fashion, we get absolutely no detail uh, about what Jesus teaches. We just hear that he's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and what do we get? We get people's reactions. It says, and they were astonished. Uh, the Greek word is like, uh, he was amazed, or like their, their minds were absolutely blown at the things that he had to say. Uh, that was me this week, um, seeing the new film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I'm like leaned in. I haven't seen a movie like this in a long time. I'm curious. I'm captivated. I'm evaluating my life. My mind is blown. And what do I do? I go home and go to bed and haven't really talked about it since, right? That's what's actually happening here. In the same way, they have this short-lived admiration for Jesus, right? Their astonishment or amazement with Jesus, it really never scratched the surface, right? But rather, they have questions, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And they're like, no, 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 this guy was my neighbor. Like, I know he didn't go to school in Boston. Like, I know he went to no Ivy League school. He never snuck off. Like, he's been right here the whole time. Where did he learn these things? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Like, this is the local boy, right? He's not of noble birth. There'd be people in the room that were like, yo, he used to come over as a boy to my house and play games and eat dinner. And so they're amazed that, that he has this level of wisdom, but they're dumbfounded, right? They're dumbfounded because he's just the hometown boy. The irony is they acknowledge power, they acknowledge wisdom, but they cannot take him seriously. It's like um, going home for Christmas after you've been away for a number of years. You see your family, um, you see some of your extended family, and they know the child you but they can't know the you now, right? They don't know the real you. They don't know the challenges you're facing. They don't know the new friendships you're making. They don't know the ways that you've grown up and mature. All they can see is that little kid, right, that they changed their diaper that one time, you know? And they just can't wrap their heads around the grown-up you. And so this is what happens to Jesus as he comes to Nazareth. They come, he comes, and then it says, and they took offense at him. The Greek word for offense there is um, scandalizo. I love this. It, he's, he scandalizes them. It's a scandal that he comes back and has all of this knowledge. And really what the word means is they refuse to believe in him. And you sort of have to wonder, like, what are you so offended about, right? Like, what are you so offended about? You, you acknowledge this, ha this man has power. This man has wisdom. Like, th his miracles are mighty. They're amazed at him. But then it says they're offended. Why are they offended? And I think the reason that they're offended is they have a limited understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. They have a limited understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And really what it is is they have preconceived notions about who Jesus is, and they can't move past it. And the irony is 
we do the same thing. We have preconceived notions about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And if we only ever hold on to those and we don't let them actually be shaped by the story of Scripture, what we actually find is that we misunderstand the real Jesus. We become blind to the person of Jesus. And I think this is still the temptation in our time, to be offended by Jesus, to reduce Jesus to a sort of good psychology or a form of escapism, a sort of impersonal rescue, like Jesus just came to save me. He died on the cross for me. I'm just going to rest in that, and I'm just going to move on, right? But is that what following Jesus is? And I think the pathway to understand where we are personally is actually in the ways that we're offended by Jesus. And so how are you offended by Jesus? How is Jesus offending where you are currently? Jesus still, I mean, then and even now, still has a sort of divisiveness to him, right? He, he, he makes us make choices. If you hang around long enough, what you find is that Jesus's way and Jesus's teaching um, comes up against your life and they start to butt against each other. The way that you think about things, the way you do things. And of course, we're here because we say we want to be formed by that. We want to come underneath his way and his teaching and, and, and be shaped by that. But what we actually realize is our way of being and thinking actually begins to butt up against that. And so, Okay, maybe you're like, no way, Russell. That's why I'm here because I, I, I agree with everything that Jesus says. He never offends me. I only ever agree with him. And well, good for you, all right? But what about his exclusive claims, right? Like I think of uh, John 14, 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Like, go to work and say that. That's, that'd be offensive, right? Like that would be an offensive thing to say in your workplace. I am the way, right? Definitive article, the. I am the truth and the life, right? Jesus seems to be raising the bar really high, right? Like, that's, that's too high. He's defining who is in and who is out in a very narrow way. And I'm just going to be honest, sometimes that offends my sensibilities, right? This definitely goes against the grain of modern culture. Like, Jesus, what you did is good in 30 AD, 2022. You just got to kind of catch up, Jesus. You're a little behind, right? You got to catch up. Get with it, Jesus. It's narrow. What about the second one here? Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I don't like that. That's offensive, Jesus. Like, we got to come to the scriptures honest and real. That's, that's getting narrow, right? Or maybe even take it a step further and you'd say, okay, religious exclusivity bothers me, but it doesn't only bother me, I believe it to be dangerous. I believe it to be dangerous. Look at the wars that are happening around the world. Oftentimes those happen because of religious reasons, because people believe that their way is the right way. And so it's dangerous for peace in our world. And I know that we come in here and we think, okay, we're coming to be shaped by Jesus, but what we actually need to come to realize is oftentimes we're, we're coming here to be shaped by Jesus, but first we need to be offended by him, like in a personal sense, right? Jesus, us, Jesus is calling us to come back to him and conform to his way, and it gets a little bit harder, right? Or maybe, maybe for you, you'd say, well, you know, you know what else offends me? Like Jesus' exclusive claims are hard, but like I, don't, I just don't like how Jesus goes on about judgment all the time. Jesus talks about heaven or hell, or Jesus ha has and maintains a sexual ethic. Like, that bothers me. Or what about a, a scripture like um, where, where Jesus says to give your money away? Like, that's my money. I earned that. Like, that's offensive, right? When Jesus is like, take your money and give it away. What about this one? Love and pray for your enemy. 
I'll pray for my friends. That's no problem. But praying for my enemy, forgiveness, like this is, this is, this is starting to mount up, right? Like I don't know if I want to follow this guy. And I think that there's a, a real effort to actually rearrange the controversial teachings of Jesus and, and, and to, to get a picture of Jesus that's sort of weak and diluted to where the option is, is like, okay, follow a Jesus of your own makeup, the picking and choosing. I'm going to follow that Jesus or you can follow the real Jesus. But if you choose the, the one of your own makeup, it ends up being no Jesus at all. Like that, that's just the facts. Or what about the inclusive claims of Jesus? You pick up the Gospels, and what you find over and over and over again is that Jesus consistently and willfully angered religious people. Like, he spent time on the other side of the tracks. He went to those people, eating, drinking with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. And so in his time, Jesus was offensive to the religious elite. Even in the last two chapters that we've been going through in the book of Mark, um, the inclusivity is absolutely unparalleled. The hero of the story, uh, of the stories that we've just previously read, are not the disciples. Jesus is actually harsh towards his disciples. He says, "Why can't you just have faith? Why can't you have faith?" And then you look in the story and you find that the hero is a formerly demon-possessed man that has faith in Jesus, and it's weak. And then it's a woman who's been considered culturally unclean. Her faith is weak, and she's the one that's made well by Jesus. Jesus walking around, breaking cleanliness laws, reaching out to those on the margins, valuing the overlooked and the oppressed, touching and healing the unclean, casting out demons, forgiving sins, resurrecting dead people. And you're like, you and I are like, we're not, Russell, we're not offended by that Jesus. Like, we like that Jesus, right? We're good with that Jesus. I was in a training a few months ago, um, and a question popped up. It was, um, if Jesus were to walk around your neighborhood, where would he spend time? And then the question was, do you spend time there? I was like, that's a savage question. Um, but thank you, wife. I appreciate that affirmation today. I really needed that. Um, and my answer was, I think that Jesus, if he was in our neighborhood, would hang out in Union Square. Like, I think he, Jesus would hang outside of uh, Mount Sinai. He would see patients come and go. He would, like, actually go down into the subway platform, talk to people on the platform. I think you and I would ignore him, right? Um, I think he'd go to Bread's Bakery because it's delicious. Um, and then I think he would um, step onto the steps and begin teaching and listening to people's story. Because Jesus was so radically inclusive, he could just float into different circles where you and I may never be able to. And we love Jesus, right? God on the margins, born into obscurity, others focused. And you'd say, Russell, no, again, no one is offended by this Jesus, this radically inclusive Jesus. But here's the thing is you may think you're radically inclusive like Jesus, but you're probably not. Like, who's welcome at your table? Or who do you actually spend time with? Or are your relationships, circles of relationship, open like Jesus's were? Because we're really not actually quite as open or comfortable with the level of hospitality and invitation Jesus provided. And when you were actually just to take it down to brass tacks, what you'd actually find is maybe you admire that about Jesus, but you probably want to distance yourself from that Jesus too. Like, I'm full. Like, my circle's good, right? I don't know about inviting the other to the table, right? And so Jesus offends us in this way. And maybe you'd come and you'd say, well, you know what? What I've found in this whole church religion thing is that you just got to take the things that are useful and just walk away from it as a whole. Like, just, just pick apart some things that are good, like loving your neighbor and caring for those that are poor and sick. And, like, that's, Jesus is, like, generally a good teacher, and he had good things to say. But when you come down to it, you'd say, you know what, Jesus, Jesus and I just, we really just don't see eye to eye on some things, but we're good. 
And I don't want to be harsh today, but I do want to be realistic. That's not following Jesus. Like, it's fine if you want to say, like, you're exploring faith and you're trying to piece together something. That's, that's fine. I'll, I'll give you that. That's great. Now, there's actually a lot of space for that. There's room for exploring. And I think that for a lot of people, that's a great start. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is that I believe. That's fine. But I don't think that we should call that following Jesus. Because following Jesus means I parallel my life with the one who's leading me. As a follower, I parallel my life to the one that's leading. And so if you go on a hike and you're following the path and you leave the path, you're no longer going in the path's direction. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just you're not on the path anymore, right? And that's, that's just true. You're no longer taking the direction from the path. And so here's what I, what I want to say. The way Jesus leads and the way that I follow have to be symbiotic. They have to be symbiotic, meaning I go where Jesus goes. And that doesn't, that, that, that's hard, right? This is why the, the crowd is offended. This is why they're like, this is getting too hard. I'm, I'm actually not going to keep going with you. I'm offended by what's being said. What happens? Your way, Jesus's way, beginning to butt up against each other. See, for me, I like therapist Jesus. Like, this is, this is me talking. Like, I like therapist Jesus. Read my Bible, pray, get some encouragement, get some information, share how I'm feeling, get it off of my chest. Therapist speaks back some, right, gives me from information, and then get, what do I do? I get to choose if I apply this truth or not. I, I think that's really comforting, and that's really nice. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is Jesus' way supersedes and is my way. And so, here's my question for you. In what way or ways does Jesus' teaching offend you? Mm. And not just his teaching, but his way, like the way that he went about doing things. And whatever that is, I, 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 would, just, I would just say, I, I think you should unpack that. I think you should unpack that. We're prone to ignoring hard parts of scriptures, like of coming up against something and saying, I don't know what it means, just like put a question mark by it and move on or whatever. But like that's actually worth spending your time on because then, then you can actually begin to see, okay, this is the way that, that actually Jesus has a plan, a way that is right and true and better for me to live into. And I, I just think that if you're never offended by Jesus, I have to wonder if you're following the real one, the real Jesus, right? I love what Anne Lamott famously said. She said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I think we do this in so many ways. Like, we're just like, God, this is, this is what God's like. And he's just an idealized version of ourselves. And so in what ways does Jesus' teaching or way offend you? And so one of the things I think is really important about this passage is it's really pushing on us, right? Like, you're like, whoa, this is, this is heavy. But if we flip the script a little bit, it actually has something really practical to teach us. And it's this, is that Jesus faced rejection in his time, and he actually teaches us how to face rejection in a secure and, um, let's call it a healthy way. And so here's what verse 4 says. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And I love verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Like verse 5, he could do no, no mighty works except that he actually did, right? And then verse, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went among the villages teaching. And so people are offended, right? They, the, the, the teachings in the way of Jesus have butt up against them as a person. What does he do? It says he marvels 
at their unbelief, and then he moves on. You're like, what? Like, why didn't he, like, go give them the nuance? Like, why didn't he go give them the caveat to what he's trying to communicate? It just says that he moved on. But it's even more than that. Notice in verse 4, we always hear this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Mark expands, and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus faced the rejection of his own family. In John chapter 7, it says this. It says, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. So they're like, hey, Jesus, we got like megachurch vibes coming, right? Like, you can do this, all right? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so Jesus literally felt the rejection of his own family. They're like, no, I don't, I don't want to follow either. Like, this is getting too hard, right? But there's Jesus. Not begging um, people to follow him, not chasing people down, but he marvels at their unbelief and he moves to the next town. What is this? What do we learn here? Jesus is so secure and so unoffendable, it's absolutely absurd. Like in the face of rejection, Jesus allows people to continue in their unbelief while he's amazed that they would choose that path. He allows them to continue in their unbelief, even when he's amazed that they would choose that path. And you know what's crazy about that? How loving is that? Like, how loving is it for someone to give you the freedom to make choices that are out of their control? So secure and unoffendable. What if you and I were like this? Secure and unoffendable, right? Where we walked around telling the people the truth and love. And if we were doing that in a genuine manner, if we were rejected, we still knew we were safe and unoffendable, right? I think we live in a growing, I think this is a growing challenge um, in our world, in this sort of outrage culture. Like, it seems like the goal these days is to not not be on the news. Like, we would never want our 15 minutes of fame. Like, it would be bad if we got that, right? We, we, we want to we shy away from that because we are so afraid of rejection. Uh, Mark Sayers is a pastor, and he's a cultural analyst, and he says this, In the democratic, egalitarian spirit of our day, we hold in suspicion positions of social authority, yet we submit to the power of our peers. Social anxiety, peer group pressure, and competition all dictate our lives. Many are more afraid of offending their friends than they are offending figures of authority. We've moved from a culture based upon hierarchy to peerarchy. That's not a word, but it's fine. Ironically, we flee from relational distinctions and boundaries, yet without these traditions and boundaries, we become mired in codependency. Okay, this is a little bit wordy, so let's do this together. The second sentence, social anxiety, peer group pressure, and competition all dictate our lives. Last sentence, ironically, we flee from relational distinctions and boundaries, yet without these traditions and boundaries, we become mired in codependency. How do we even have friends anymore? Like, how do we do this relationship thing anymore? It's getting really difficult, right? Social anxiety and peer group pressures. It's like we're fleeing from relational um, um, distinctions and boundaries, yet 
we need the framework to actually exist and be friends with, right? And the truth is we're all learning to be friends with people and, and to be in relationships with other people. We're trying to be good friends. We're trying to be good family members. But the truth is, is what we're doing when we're coming into a relationship is we're bringing all of our securities and insecurities, right? We're bringing our family baggages, our life experience. And then guess what? We all react to rejection differently. But I think it's growing increasingly difficult to face that level of rejection and to maintain a whole self as a person. And this is why I love um, Jesus' reaction here. He's the most emotionally, mentally healthy person to ever walk the earth. He holds a confident and non-anxious presence. He has a non-anxious presence. And so what do you like when you get offended or rejected? You shut down? Do you push in and get aggressive? Are you passive, aggressive? I think one of the things that the scripture shows us better than anything is that he says, hey, I actually know what it's like to experience that. But not only that, I want to tell you that you're going to experience that too. And this is what verse 7 says. This is where it kind of comes together. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with many oil who were sick and, and healed them. And so we're getting a picture of the the church and the plans for the future, right? Jesus has been walking around and doing all these things. Now he's saying, hey, you you guys are actually going to go do that. I'm going to send you out two by two to do that. But I think right now what's taking place in Mark's gospel is a trial run. He's saying, I'm getting rejected, and I'm going to teach you what it looks like to practice this level of rejection. This fall, we're going to um, spend some time talking about our emotional and spiritual health and how we put those things um, in tandem. And I really hope that everyone this fall um, would get in a community group because it's one thing to hear these principles talked about um, from up front, but it's a whole other thing to be known and to sharing your experiences as much as you want to in, in this group. But I want to give us a picture of what that might look like today because Jesus actually, and I'm not a psychologist in any way, shape, or form. I don't have that degree. Um, but Jesus actually shows us what a mature and healthy adult looks like when they face rejection and are offended. And the process that, uh, this comes from family systems theory, um, is self-differentiation. And so self-differentiation is, um, differentiation involves remaining connected to people and yet not having your reactions or behavior determined by them. Second definition, just to build on that a little bit, um, differentiation of self is a psychological state of being in which someone is able to maintain their sense of self, identity, thoughts, and emotions when emotionally or physically close with others, particularly with intense or intimate relationships. This is what Jesus is actually modeling for himself. He is free to be himself 100% to maintain a non-anxious presence for others. Um, his life is interdirected. And so he can be rejected by people, and he can be whole, and he can move on, right? He has a stable sense of self, and he's rejected. Both things are simultaneously true. And in high-charge situations, 
Uh, it's worth evaluating how it is that we react and why that is. I don't think that we're ever going to, um, you know, on this earth, figure out how to become 100% like Jesus in this way, to be self-differentiated. But the questions become, what do I do when um, I'm flooded with emotion? What do I do when I'm feeling highly reactive? How do I pause in that moment, take a big, deep breath? Why am I so triggered by this one thing? I'm actually, I'm actually a little bit afraid for myself uh, as we go through this emotionally healthy fall. I'm like, I think I'm going to be going back to therapy at the end of it. So it's going to be a good thing. But I, I think this is what we're taking steps towards, right? Is how do we look at the person of Jesus as, as not only a model, but as someone who um, we look at and we say goals, right? Like, how do I look at Jesus and say, I want to have a safe and secure self apart from other people relationship, knowing that I'm definitely um, interdependent on other people, but I'm self-differentiated. I was thinking about this week. um, I left home when I was 18, um, haven't lived at home, and I feel like every day, I don't know, every week is like a step into becoming a more whole self, right? Like learning what was good about my childhood, learning what was bad about my childhood, but ultimately taking a step away from home, realizing, wow, my parents raised me, shaped me in these ways. I I learned this at church, but I'm actually, um, I have been, and I'm growing into a more whole, self-sufficient person apart from them. And that's that's not a bad thing, and that's not a knock at them either. Like they raised me to be able to do that. And so I think this is what Jesus is actually showing us. And the other thing he's showing us is that we as people can control one person. We can only control one person. I know it's like a really hard, simple truth that we have to learn in life, but we can control ourselves. We can control the things that we say and the things that we do. And I actually, in one sense, it seems a little bit harsh, but I love the fact that he walks away, right? He doesn't chase people down trying to figure out how to, just like, just wait, wait, I'm going to the cross, right? Like, I'm going to do this thing, just wait. He doesn't do it. He goes to the next town. And so Jesus is showing us that people will reject him, and he's unoffended, and he's fully secure. Are you unoffendable? Are you secure? I know this is like a, a deep question, right? Like, are you a secure person? And if I'm honest, I waver, right? I waver, I go back and forth, I'm secure, I'm insecure, I'm secure, I'm insecure. I'm unoffendable, I'm definitely offended, right? But to be a follower of Jesus is to be faithful amid all of that tension, right? To stay engaged, to listen, to remain hopeful, to uh, love people anyway, and to walk with integrity, to model and show the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus. And here's the last thing. Verse 6 says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. Later in Mark's gospel, we'll get there, I don't know when, Mark, Mark chapter 9, um, Jesus is um, approaching this, this man, and his son has, it's like seizures, basically. Um, a spirit has left him mute, and he's been having seizure, seizures since childhood. And the father comes to him and asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus asks him a question. I can't remember what it was. And I really resonate with this man's response. He simply said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's like, do you believe? Do you not believe? I believe, help my unbelief. And so I'm going to leave us with this right here. That's me for sure, where I'm like, I believe. Like, I know I believe these things. I'm, I, I, want, I want my life to be symbi- symbiotic with Jesus' way and teachings. Like, I want that. I desire that. But oftentimes I fall short of that. I don't do it. I believe, help my unbelief. 
And maybe that would be you today where you'd say, you know what, like, I'm actually trying. Like, I'm genuinely here. I'm listening, and I'm trying. I'm trying to follow. I'm trying to put the pieces together of what, it, what, what this all means, of what my life looks like. And Jesus' invitation, or this man's invitation, is to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what I believe is that Jesus can meet us in that place that we might believe, that we might actually trust, that we might actually lean our life against him. And the thing that we might find is that his way is always going to be better than our way, that the things that he desires for us are better because we are met by a God who knows rejection, who knows scorn, who knows just a short time later would actually go to the cross and die and be rejected so that you and I could have life. And so this is where we end today. Um, I'm going to pray, and um, we're going to participate in communion um, with one another today. To, and as we take it today, we're reminded of the person of Jesus and the rejection that he faced, that we get to, in fact, use the word celebration when we come to this meal, but it wasn't a celebration for Jesus in this time, that his body was broken and that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. And so anyone who believes in this is welcome to share this meal. And if you're not there or you don't, you're like, I'm confused right now, no problem. Feel, feel free to consider your spiritual journey uh, thus far. You can open this up and then I'll pray for us.